time to get those bonus miles. Here's your girl, Autumn Miles. Hey, hey, guys, it's your girl back here, Autumn Miles. Um, you are listening to the Autumn Miles Show. This is a bonus miles. Bonus! So I hope you are enjoying your day. This is going to be just a short word that is going to be like a steroid shot of truth. And it is going to be so good. Y'all, I'm fangirling so hard today because Miss Sheila Walsh herself is on my show. And I've looked up to her for so many years. And she is going to be talking about her book. So I want to go ahead and introduce her. This blew me away, you guys. It totally blew me away. She's the author of more than 30 books, and she sold almost 6 million copies. Can you guys imagine? That's like as much as a country. I can't even believe that. But when I read that, I was like, oh my goodness gracious, God has used her literally worldwide. And and she's with us today. I I, I want to go ahead and, and welcome her in. Welcome, Miss Sheila Walsh, to the show. Thank you so much for being on. Autumn, just listening to your voice would make anybody feel better. <laughs> they call me everybody's best friend because I'm like, I'm your girl. Let's just go I hang out. I love that. <laughs> I'm your girl. Okay. So Sheila, I'm obsessed with this book. I'm obsessed. And this is why we don't talk about the topic of mental health enough. We don't talk about it. It is a thing. It's a huge thing. And I think if we can normalize this conversation, especially in the church, oh my goodness, would that not transform the church in and of itself, that one conversation? You wrote this book, Holding On When You Want to Let Go. Tell me about it. Tell me about your heart behind this. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I started writing a different book, the end, just before 2020 hit. I started writing a book on miracles because I thought, I want to know what is a genuine miracle? You know, what are we looking for that maybe we're missing? Um, And then 2020 hit and I found myself spiraling again with clinical depression. I was hospitalized for a month in a psych hospital in 1992. And back then, I didn't know one other person who who was a Christian who talked about the fact that they were living with a mental illness. But what surprised me was finding myself spiraling again. And I read the first couple of chapters I'd written of this other book. And I thought, this is not helping me at all. And if it's not helping me, it's a good chance it's not going to help anybody. So I hit the delete button and I, I just started again. And because my thing is, I felt like I was hanging by a thread. And I mm. thought, if I am, I bet there's other people there too. So I just wanted to write like kind of like a guidebook of hope for people who think, am I the only one who feels this way? I think I, I, first of all, thank you for your transparency. I got your, well, it's not the final one, but I I started looking through it and this, I mean, I, it's like page 23. It says this, God, what's happening? Do you see us? Where, why are you letting this happen? Will life ever be normal again? Will we survive this? When will this be over? Will our relationship survive this? Why is everything so out of control? I know that everyone that's downloading this, ears just perked up. Because I think in the last year, all of us have asked one question or another when relating to the virus and what's going on in our churches and what's going on in our families. A lot of us have lost loved ones. A lot of us have have a lot of us have had the virus ourselves. 
And if you didn't have some sort of mental anxiety or depression or something, odds are you were confronted with it last year. One of the things I like about this is you you talk about the hanging on by a thread, and I think that's kind of where a lot of people are. Talk to me a little bit about you, maybe last year, but also dealing with clinical depression, just when you were maybe diagnosed with clinical depression and how that, that flared up last year, and what were the signs that you were dealing with it again? Yeah, this is a great question, because back in 1992, I didn't know what clinical depression was, particularly if you're a Christian, particularly if you are part of a ministry that prays for people to get healed. You know, I was a co-host of the 700 Club, and I'm falling off my own chair. And it would be little things like I would go to the ATM machine and couldn't remember my pin. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't Mm. eat. But more than anything, it was this overwhelming weight of sadness. Mm. And I thought there must be something in my life that's not pleasing to God. So I took a little time off work and I fasted and prayed for 21 days. Mm. And I said, Lord, if there's something in my life that's not pleasing, please show me. Mm. And honestly, Autumn, at the end of the 21 days, there was no condemnation, but there was no comfort either. It Mm. felt as if heaven was silent. And, And not long after that, I fell apart one morning on live national television. My guest, instead of of answering my question, she said, Sheila, you sit here every day asking us questions. Let me ask you one. How are you doing? And it was so, it was so kind, but I wasn't expecting it. And I didn't have time to pull that wall up around me that I I kept. And I started to cry and I couldn't stop. And by that evening, I was in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital, the same age as my dad was when he was admitted to a psych hospital and he took his own life. Oh my goodness gracious. So you were you were confronted live on air? That is crazy. <laughs> and she meant it kindly. That was the thing. I think she felt so bad because I think she just meant like, hey, how are you doing? How, how are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, apparently not well. <laughs> so you were, how long were you in that? You were in there a month, I think I read. Is that right? Yeah, I spent a month in a psych hospital. And honestly, it was one of God's greatest gifts to me. When you think your whole relationship with God is based on you getting everything right and being the perfect Christian and you fall apart and you've got nothing left and you discover in your brokenness what you've been longing for all your life, which is a relationship with God based on nothing you bring to the table. Mm. Come on, nothing. Grace alone. Wow. Okay. So talk to me about you're in there for a month and, and I'm sure that did it get better? Did it get easier? Is it is it one of those things where you sort of struggled and then and then got better? Talk to me about that because I think that there's a lot of confusion about like I'm healed, I'm healed from depression, I'm not. Tell me about your personal pr- uh, process with with uh, clinical depression. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because a lot of people have asked me over the years, how long did it take them to fix you? And I said, it's much better that I'm not fixed, but I am redeemed. Mm. And I think that's the thing. You know, so much of mental illness, it's not curable, but it's treatable. Mm. So I still take my medication every morning and I, I, I do the things I know to do. But there's a lot of confusion in the church. You know, people want to say, you know, come on, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. 
But you wouldn't say that to somebody who fell off a bike and broke their leg. You mm. would take them to get some help. Mm. So I think that I'm trying to help people understand. I mean, obviously, sometimes you'll go through a period of depression if you lose someone or a marriage ends or financial troubles. But if you have clinical depression, that means your brain simply doesn't produce enough of the right chemicals to be able to function as God made you. So I'm trying to help people understand, A, you don't have to be ashamed. It's not your spiritual life. It's your brain chemistry. Mm. So so then 2020 came and you noticed some of those same tendencies. Talk, talk to me about that and just the realization that, oh, my goodness, here I am again, maybe, or, or yeah. tell me about it. It, it felt different this time. It felt like every, I mean, for the first few weeks, honestly, of COVID, I was kind of glad. I thought, this is cool. I'm used to flying out every weekend and speaking. Yeah. And I just stayed in my pajamas with no makeup and binge watched the Great British Baking Show. Oh, but me so- too. I did that too. <laughs> Unfortunately, I made the things and so my jeans are a little bit tighter. But then I found as the weeks went on, I, I would feel this dread every morning when I woke up. And part of it was watching the news and seeing people who couldn't be with their family members who were dying. And and it just, it was like, the, I felt like I woke up on a different planet and nothing was normal. And just this weight of heaviness. And one of my spiritual mentor was, was Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife. And mm. sometimes when he would be off on crusades, I would go and stay with Ruth at the house. And she said to me, Sheila, when you're researching something or you want to understand something, don't just read what's current. Go as far back as you can in mm. the history of God's people. And I found this guy called Athanasius. And he wrote this, whereas most of scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. Mm. So here's what I do every morning now. And I started doing this back then. I go out now my balcony and I read three Psalms out loud because mm. it's good for my ears to hear what my eyes are reading. Mm. And it's almost like this declaration of what is true, no matter what I might feel to be true at that particular moment. And the other thing we need is we were not made to do life alone. Yes. We need community. Yeah. And when we, when our churches were closed, when everything was changed, I have one of my safeguards in my life is I have three, what I call safe sisters who know where the bodies are buried. You know, they know everything <laughs> about me. Yes. And it's really important for us. It's like every human being longs to be loved and longs to be known. But mm. we're so scared that if we're known, we won't be loved, that we trade away being known. But we need to be known by people that we can trust. Mm. This I was going to I was going to go and I was going to ask you just about the word and how you how the Lord sort of interjected into this this season of depression. Is that one of the the practical tips that you would tell us? This is what you need to do in order to be treated, as you say, and sort of navigate seasons of depression. Do you have any other practical tips that people listening can sort of grab onto and sink their teeth into? Well, I have I have a few things that work for me. I think people have to kind of find what works for them. I have a worship playlist on my iPhone and, and I will listen to that. I also started listening to podcasts, you know, from other people who, you know, who, who speak truth and who speak life into you instead of just watching the news because it's so blooming depressing, you know, <laughs> that to have to be able to get some positive input into my life has been absolutely wonderful. And one of the cool things is that our son, who's 24, and he's at UNT doing clinical psychology. Wow. He moved, yeah, he moved back home after, like at the end of last year, 
because um, he'd been going to school in Houston, but he was really struggling with anxiety and depression. And we'd learned as a family, it's just my husband, my son, myself, our two dogs and his cat, which is a whole other show. But, <laughs> but just being able to talk openly as a family and, and not be afraid to say, hey, I'm not doing well today. And then not feeling like you have to fix that person. Because I think mm -hmm. sometimes if somebody in your family is struggling with any kind of mental illness, sometimes we don't know what to do. We think like, you know, I'll, let me tell you something or let me, this might help you. Sometimes the greatest gift we can give one another is the gift of our presence. We mm -hmm. don't need to talk all the time. We can just be there for one another. That's what, when Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he says, bear one another's burdens yes. and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that word burden in Greek means like a ship's load, like when life is too much to carry, that we need to walk beside each other. Mm. I love that that you that you go there and you guys have it's almost you've normal you have normalized this in your own family. It's not something that's unspoken. It's something that that's talked about openly. Why is this so hard to talk about? Why why do you think it's so hard for people to say, I I think I'm depressed. Like, I think yeah. I am. Why do you think that's so hard? And how, if we have a friend or a loved one, or I know a lot of people are like, I've got a friend, that friend is me that's listening right now. How do we, how do we bring it up if we think we see it in them and they're feeling uncomfortable? What would you say we do? You know, it's so interesting because I go back to that woman on the 700 Club, just simply, you know, you can tell the difference between somebody saying, hey, how are you doing? And basically they mean I've got something else to tell you. But, and somebody actually looking in your eyes and saying, hey, how are you doing? Mm. And then waiting. Mm. You know, I think that there's such stigma attached to mental illness. It's not like if I had a brain tumor, I can show you the x-ray and then yeah. we can get half the world praying immediately. But because mental illness doesn't show up on an x-ray, it's much more difficult to talk about. But when I think of particularly like my son's age and all the kids who are struggling, he, when he graduated from Texas A&M, if you wanted to see a counselor, there was a four month waiting list. Because wow. So many of our kids are struggling, but they don't know whether they can talk about it, particularly if they're Christian kids in a family and they think, I don't want to say anything that will harm my mother and father's reputation. We need to get rid of our reputation. You know, our only reputation we need is that we are broken followers who are in love with Jesus. Okay. And I'm sorry to interrupt. Let's talk about that for a minute. We've got a lot of pastors, pastors' wives, stuff like that, that listen to this show. What, how can we as leaders in the church, what, what do we do? Help us, help us help people. <laughs> Uh, yeah. what, what should we do if we are, and I know there's a lot of, of ministers and, and wives and stuff like that that are listening. Speak to them for a second, because this is everywhere. And I even think that the pastors and the ministers and the whatever, they don't even know what to do right now. So yeah. help, help us, help us help them. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when I went to seminary when I was 19, the whole kind of message, particularly to the men, was you don't get too close to anybody in the church, you know, and you have to, you're the one that everybody is looking up to. And even when I went back to graduate school in seminary, to, a, to Fuller Seminary, it was a similar message. But I have to tell you the story of my own pastor. You know, we as a family go to Prestonwood. And so Jack Graham, when I, when I first talked to him about my own struggles, he, he interviewed me in church and talked about mental health. 
And I think he was blown away by the number of people who came up afterwards and said, me too, me too, me too. Wow. But then he did something that was a little different. When he went through prostate cancer, he found himself really struggling with depression. I mean, he hit such a pit. But then he determined that he was going to speak about it from the pulpit. And I think... I think our understanding of leadership, I think maybe could shift a little, that it's not like we've got it all together and we're trying to help you get it together, but rather that we are in process with you. And when Jack spoke about his depression, you could feel it was almost like this healing rain that fell on the congregation of saying, it's okay not to be okay, yeah. but here's what I'm finding on the journey. So we don't want to overshare. When things are fresh, there's a difference between a wound and a scar. Yeah. Scars are proof that God heals. Mm -hmm. And we need time to let wounds become scars. But then we can share them because we follow our Jesus chose to keep the scars of crucifixion. It'll be the only wounds left, only scars left in heaven will be his. And if he chose to keep his, we can share ours. Oh, yes. Okay. I hope those those leaders out there are listening. We need to be more vulnerable and share. I know last year it was rough for me and I've been very vocal about that. I want to backtrack a little bit because I don't want to miss this opportunity because I think because you're so vulnerable in this book, it kind of opens up the window for other people to say, oh, if she went through that, mm -hmm. I can too. You talk about your dad and um, you talk about his struggle and he ended up committing suicide, but there was maybe some abuse involved. And I'd like to talk about that for a second. And those, those that are listening that have never dealt with that and they know what's in their past mm. and they don't know what to do, but they know it's time to confront some of those uh, wounds. I don't even know mm. if they would be scars yet wounds. Mm. Can you speak to that person and maybe a, l a little bit with your own personal story? I think God is very gentle with us in our healing process because the thing that was hard for me as a child was my dad was my hero. I just mm. thought there was nobody like him. But then this massive brain aneurysm changed his personality and he was quite violent with me. In fact, mm. my dad tried to kill me the, d the day that he oh was my taken goodness. off. Yeah, the day that he was taken off to a psych hospital and managed to escape and drowned himself. But here's the wow. thing, Autumn, back then in Scotland, we didn't mention his name again. We moved on as if nothing had happened. We left the town because my dad, it was a shame in that in those days for a Christian to commit suicide. So we left the town and my dad was buried in an unmarked grave. And for wow. years, that's been like an ache in my heart because it was like we just erased his memory. Mm. And as I was finishing this book, I, I had one chapter left and I, I didn't even know what to do. But my sister was staying with me and my, you know, we don't talk about it. It's too painful for our family. And so I respect that. But one night my sister said to me, Sheila, is there anything I could do for you? And it wasn't the kind of normal question she ever asks me. And I, and I said to her, Francis, could you help me find out where my dad's buried? And she wow. said, Sheila, I know where he's buried. I have the papers. And so for the first time, my brother and my sister and I were able to put up a memorial stone in my mm -hmm. father's honor and begin to talk. And Here's the, the reality, though. Some people choose not to. It's too painful. And I think the way that God has designed us and designed our brain and our spirit and our soul, some people just choose to go through life that way because they don't want to talk about it. But for people like me who want to understand some of the missing pieces, it's been really, really healing. And I think here's what's interesting. I was five when that happened with my dad. Mm. When my son was five, 
our, my father-in-law who'd lived with us for a few years collapsed and died. And Christian's outside the bathroom door while I'm calling 911. And I hear him saying, mom, can I come in? Mm. And I remembered being told I could never come in. And I wow. said to him, yes, Christian, come in, you can help. And I watched this little boy sit beside his grandfather and hold his hand mm. and sing a song to him in the last few moments we had with him. And I think that there's, I've learned so much to break that family cycle of we don't talk about things that are hard because the things we don't talk about, what we imagine in our minds is honestly worse. Mm. We can we can bear wow. the pain of what was true more than the pain of what we think might have happened. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. That I think I feel like that would be not a not a challenge. That's not the right word, but an encouragement to those that that don't. You know, you were able to go back and place the stone and and you know work through some of that stuff that was silenced. I would encourage those of you out that are that are listening to do the same thing with your own story. Um, go start start opening up some of that stuff and maybe talk through it. And another thing I would recommend is going and getting Sheila Walsh's new book, Holding On When You Want to Let Go. I really do believe this is a right now word. I feel like we've had so many guests on the last couple of weeks. I'm like, this is for right now. Do you know how good this is right now? This is so good. But this is another one that it's like, it, it just, it's like, it just speaks to our heart right now through the season. So listener, go get Sheila Walsh's new book. And Sheila, thank you so much for being vulnerable for being transparent, for being a human. Thank you for being a human <laughs> and for, uh, for bringing us some hope today. I know that, I know that you have ministered to those that are listening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Autumn. You're just adorable. God bless you, my friend. And I'm still fangirling over here, even though I was trying to keep it together. <laughs> Thank y'all for listening. You can catch me right back here next week. You know, your girl's going to be back with a fresh show. Love you guys. I'll see you then. To find out how you can get a copy of Gangster Prayer, Autumn's latest book, go to autumnmiles.com.